up here, get my map. Can't teach without a map. You know, I went over uh, this morning, I was walking down the hallway and I seen uh, the Bereans, Bob Hall over there. He had a map up. And they're talking about how the gospel went from uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, up into Europe. You know, the same things that we've been covering in here. All, all, how all the disciples, you know, we don't think about it, but the disciples, you know, went all through this area. Southern France, Germany, you know, so that's what they're talking about today. So, oh, that was cool. All right. Uh, let me think. The pens? We used to have a bunch out at the. Oh man, yeah, yeah. We gave him. That's funny. All right. So today we've we've talked about manuscript evidence for many weeks. But today, with, without a doubt, is like my favorite that I've been looking forward to covering with you guys. Uh, you may already have heard a lot of this, and if, you know, so that's great. But the, the real nuts and bolts of how we got our King James Bible is just really cool to, to talk about. And, and that's what we're going to cover today. I don't know how far we're going to get. Uh, I've got like 80 slides in my deck here. and I, I'm going to try to slow down a little bit today because I've been going at a pretty good clip. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm going to try to slow down. So if you have any questions, comment, if you heard something that you know, I, I didn't cover, just you know, interactive, throw it out. It's early Sunday, so we're still kind of waking up. But I thought, why not have a little review real quick? So, and I've got a whole row of candy bars, fresh ones, not melted, <laughs> but they're the mini, you know, the COVID versions, uh, the COVID edition. So, going back many weeks, our Old Testament that we have today, where did it come from? So, my first question would be, you know, we... The Old Testament was originally written by the prophets and David and Solomon and the boys, Jeremiah. They all wrote parts of it. When did our Old Testament, the 39 books of our Old Testament, get canonized? Does anyone remember who did it and approximately when? Before that, that's a good answer. Ezra. Ezra, the scribe. You know, Steve covered Babylon. Or, uh, don't throw candy at me. I can't catch it. Here, a couple for you and, and Emma. You guys, uh, some candlelit dinner, uh, roses and all that. Candy bar. All right, yeah. You know, Steve covered Jeremiah, and, and they end up going into captivity. The, the Israelites do. While they're in captivity, Ezra really steps up and takes all the, the manuscripts they had, all the Bibles, you know, because all the kings were told to make their own copy, you know, back in Deuteronomy. The, uh, the Levites in the temple kept copies in the temple. Well, now the temple's gone, and they're like exiled to Babylon. So luckily, God put it in Ezra's heart or mind that this is a good time to solidify these 39 books and the canon, the 39 books we have today. So that's where the Old Testament got put together very early on, way before Christ. Uh, in the Old Testament, they didn't have chapters and verses. We talked about that. They had these little tick marks kind of throughout the, the books. That... Alright, so then we get into the, the uh, Christ comes, we get into the, the New Testament era and something else preserves them now. So what preserved them from early the early church till till later? <laughs> the Masoretes, yes, the Maser the Masoretic tag. And you got several grandkids. I'll just give you a bunch of these. Yes, um, and and this is this is also kind of a, a it was a cool story we covered, and hopefully you guys remember some of it. But the Roman Empire fell in around four four seventy six. And uh, the, the Hebrew language and, and the Jewish people, as, as a people, are getting diluted. 
spreading through Europe. Nobody's speaking Hebrew anymore. Um, they're not able to preserve their, their heritage like they want. So, so this group of Masoretes in Israel decide to take these Hebrew texts and, and meticulously copy and preserve them and keep them hidden really from the world. Because uh, we didn't even discover a lot of this stuff in the last couple hundred years. Actually, some of them were discovered in the 80s. So these guys really preserved and meticulously copied and kept the Old Testament text. And it made it to another guy, key guy in the development of our Bible. Another guy took those texts and helped bring about our King James Bible. Does anyone remember who that dude was? The press. The, the press. Close. It was a guy named Erasmus. He like assembled a lot of this stuff and, and really got the, the new modern English Bibles going. So anyway, that's the Old Testament. That's how we got the Old Testament. And in the uh, 1500s is when the uh, guy named Stephanus, um, they took those ancient tick marks and kind of formalized them into chapters and verses. And, and that was all started around the 1500s. So it's pretty recent that we've got our chapters and verses. So, all right. Ooh, okay, yeah, there's, there's the answer. Masoretic text, all right. Now, New Testament. Oh, okay. I threw this in. This was a slide from the first week. You know, we have a lot of the Masoretic texts in libraries and museums around the world. And the, the Mikrot Gedalot is the actual text that the, trans, the King James folks used. Uh, it's, in, it's in good quality. It's from the 16th century. It's a complete Old Testament. That's where our Old Testament comes from is the uh, Mikrot Gedalot. And all these others, you can still see them. The Aleppo, uh, it's in a big museum in Israel. Steve probably saw it when he went there. but It's just really fascinating. The, the history behind all of that is so cool. They, they were involved in the Crusades. All through history, they've, they've been there. It kind of reminds me of those Nicolas Cage movies, you know, with the... It's really cool. I love reading books about that stuff. All right, so New Testament. It's slightly different. You know, when Jesus came down, the disciples wrote all these letters. When were our 27 books of the New Testament canonized? Like, when did... Do you remember how I showed you that list of, like, 200 and some odd books that were circulating? You know, the Book of Enoch, the, the Bar Epistle of Barnabas, uh, Gospel of Eve. Who settled on the 27 that we have in our Bible today? Does anyone remember? It was the early, the early church, the early church fathers like Papias, Polycarp, the disciples of John. Early on, they they started carrying twenty seven. They they weren't carrying all these other hundreds of of kind of weirdo books that were circulating at the time. And actually, Pam had brought a few weeks ago. Pam Anderson, you brought the was it the Gospel of Barnabas? Gospel of Judas. Judas. I read it. Yeah. yeah. And see, when you and when you read it. It's obvious this is not scripture. And that's why I encourage you guys to read some of that if you get a chance. Polycarp wrote some stuff that you'd think would be included, but it ain't. But like Pam said, when you actually read it, you can tell it's not scripture. It just doesn't have that, I guess the Holy Spirit just doesn't confirm in our hearts that this is God's word. And these guys were you know, experiencing the same thing. So. The 27 books of the New Testament were firmed up early on, like 208 A.D. I mean, it was pretty early. Alright, so, what method then did God use to preserve those 27 Greek texts all the way up till today? Anyone remember that? This is a big word. It starts with a B. The Byzantine, which was the empire here in Turkey. These guys were kind of separate from the Romish influence that was going on through Europe. And they were over here, the Byzantine Empire. These Greek scholars were keeping, kind of like the Masoretes did. They kept this Greek preserved over here. So then whenever Islam came up from the south, it pushed these Greek scholars into France and Germany that then taught our same guy and he made a, a New Testament out of that. So this, this is, I don't know, we already talked about it, this is Erasmus. 
uh, Erasmus took those Greek texts that he learned from the Byzantine Empire and put them into English, actually it's a new Greek, he put them into a new consolidated Greek. Uh, and that's what our 1611 translators used, it was the Erasmus text. Uh, same thing on the, the uh, chapters, verses, that was all added around the 1500s uh, by Stephanus, same, same guy. So that's, that's our deal, Byzantine preservation. That's kind of the key, I was wanting to communicate. The Masoretes did it for the Old Testament, the Byzantines did it for the New, and that's how God delivered those things to us, pure. So then our, our translators could take over in the 1600s. So, um, another bit of review on the Greek side. This is New Testament stuff. The Byzantine text, there are literally thousands of these texts that were preserved for us in Turkey, in, in the, the Byzantine Empire. Um, and I... Thousands of them. Now, the Alexandrian texts were from down here in Egypt. It's not quite on my map, but those are the uh, the origin and the boys that corrupted the the Greek early on, and those things have been floating around. Uh, we've got some Western texts and Caesarean texts, but what I equated it to is the whole ball game thing. How on the on the Byzantine texts? Let me go back. My clicker's not clicking. The Byzantine texts, there's almost 6,000 of these fragments and, and books, and there's just all kinds of them. So I equated that to the ball game. If you've got a ball game of 6,000 people, and like 5,800 of them are telling you the same story that something happened on the field, you know, the, the pitcher did something, threw a hot dog at the first baseman, and something happened. 5,800 of the guys in the stands tell you the same story. But then on the Alexandrian text, they, on, they all tell you a different story and they don't agree with each other. That's the analogy of the majority text. It's pretty pure. There's very low variance in all 5,000, 6,000 of these things. And that's why Erasmus chose, there's our hero here, Erasmus chose to take all of these fragments and books and consolidate them into a Greek New Testament that he produced and he, he, he named it like the, the Novum Scriptorum, you know, big Latin name. But his work is what we commonly call the Textus Receptus, the received text. Because now we have received this, this, you know, this pure text from, from the Byzantine Empire and through Erasmus. So does that make sense? Everybody kind of up speed. This is kind of what we've covered lately. We talked about, we spent several weeks talking about all the English Bibles. You know, how Wycliffe did the first you know, English, uh, Erasmus did his Greek Testament, and, you know, Wycliffe did not use the pure Byzantine. He used the old Latin from Rome, so that's why, even though this is a good Bible, it's still kind of corrupt from the source text. Well, Erasmus comes out, and all these guys use Erasmus' text to create all these Bibles. So that's why they're they're the good Bibles. Uh, we talked about how the King Henry, the different kings and queens, influenced uh, the Bibles. How King Henry loved the ladies and had all those wives. And depending on whether or not his wife was pro-Catholic or pro-Protestant, would determine whether or not. A particular Bible was allowed. Uh, there's his wives. Some of the Bibles were allowed, some weren't. You guys probably remember all that. Any questions on any of that? It's pretty early on. All right, and these guys were buds. Um, they were actually in Belgium because they had been. They were down here. This is London. This is, this is England here. Most of our Bibles came out of Belgium and and uh, actually Switzerland, the Geneva Bible, but. Because these guys are all in exile. They're running for their lives because they never know who King Henry's going to hook up with and whether or not he's going to be against a Bible and start persecuting people or, or not. So two of these guys get killed. Uh, Bloody Mary kills him, but... Anyway, so and those, those same few friends, something that people don't really think about, those three guys that are friends actually create four 
to five of the Bibles. So that's that's where all all that come from. I don't remember if I had this last week. This is just a timeline that I put together that that shows each Bible with with the the king or queen on the throne, and that leads us up to where we're going to pick up today. It's just it's just kind of a big intro. Um, Favorite subject, the King James Bible, where did it come from? Lots of questions about how it got started, how it almost didn't start, and things like that. And that's what we're going to go through. First off, it's really interesting to see the parallels between King James and Solomon. And this is a a verse out of Chronicles that I like, and it's referring to Solomon. How King Solomon, we know he was the wisest man, the wisest king Israel ever had. And uh, King James is, is arguably the, the most intelligent, wisest king that England ever had. And the way he came to the throne was quite a bit different than other kings. Um, he even has a, a you know, Solomon had, had a bad son, Rehoboam, that kind of went off and did his own thing. Same with King James. Uh, king James' son, Charles, actually gets killed and there's a whole bunch of badness goes on there but his son was not good so uh, we did talk about James a little bit Um, I'm not going to read that verbatim I'll just tell you what happened because you've got you've got England here Henry VIII messed things up it was all turmoil Protestants Catholics everybody's fighting everybody Henry dies his daughter Mary takes over Bloody Mary she butchers, she, she tries to bring England back under Roman Catholic control. Um, so she starts butchering all the Bible believers and, and the Protestants. And, and, and she persecutes those three guys that are producing these Bibles because she's anti-English Bible. She's pro-Catholic Latin Bible. Fortunately, God doesn't let her last long, and Bloody Mary dies, and her sister Elizabeth comes on the throne. And Elizabeth is the lady that's, she was a virgin her whole life, she was pure, she was really become the poster child for just a pious, pure lady, and and purity and values of Puritans really come to the forefront during Elizabeth. Uh, we talked about the Elizabethan age, the English language was perfected, a lot of good things happened under Elizabeth. Now Elizabeth had a cousin, James, her boy. James was the king up here in Scotland, which is on the north end of the island of, of England. So James is up here, and James and Elizabeth actually helped each other. They were fighting the Spanish Armada all the time and doing some things. So James is up here. Uh, James is the one I talked about last week that his mother was such a bad queen that when he was 13 months old they gave his mother the boot and then the Scottish people put James on the throne as a 13 year old kid. James was raised as a king but obviously he wasn't a king so he was raised by regents and, and nobility of Scotland and their, their goal was to keep James in school, keep him busy learning not fiddling around with the affairs of state so they could fiddle around you know so that's why James is such an intelligent guy when he he was very fluent in like nine languages uh, but not so much English now Scotland had previously broken their grip with the Roman Catholic Church so James was uh, very familiar they're called the Scottish Kirks it's Kirk is the word Scottish word for church uh, James was over the Scottish Kirk, the church in Scotland, and James actually was in the process of uh, translating the Geneva Bible into the, the Gaelic, the Scottish language, for his people in 1601. So he, he's familiar with Bibles, translating, he knows the issues, and he knows all about the Roman Catholic Church's grip, the Protestant movement, the Bible believers, he's well versed in all the issues of the day. James is 37 years old when Elizabeth dies in uh, 1603. So James gets the phone call, your cousin has died, you need to come down to England, you're going to be king over England and Scotland. 
So that's that's where that's how he comes in. That's how he comes on the throne. So here he comes. He's a majestic guy. Um, when he comes into London, into England, in, in 1603, it's a it's it's kind of like the United States now. It's a land of uh, lots of disputes. People are arguing about the Church of England is uh, drifting too far toward Catholicism and they're doing things that a lot of people don't like and that that's, refers to the table on the first page of your handout. These are like the active these are the active groups in, in London and in England in 1600. They're, these are the guys that have the bullhorns that are standing outside the, the castle hollering at King James to make changes. There's the Bible believers, which are the people that came directly from the disciples. They, they were never part of the Roman Catholic Church. These, these were those groups that I showed pictures of, the Donatists, the, the Montanists, uh, the Gothic guys, uh, the Waldensians, the Albigensians. That's our heritage here at you know, Heartland Baptist Fellowship. Those groups converted into the, the Swiss Brethren in Switzerland with Zingli. Uh, it's, it's another really interesting story. That Brian actually has mentioned this a few times. It's always cool to hear him mention uh, Zwingli and the guys. Um, which converted into the English church, the Baptist church in England. English Baptists, the Welch Baptists. These are the guys that came over to the colonies in the late 1700s. Actually, it's the 1600s, middle. Uh, First Baptist Church was in Rhode Island from an English Baptist. My point is, we come from a line of true Bible believers that can trace our roots back to the disciples. We did not come through the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church was another arm. So that's the next on your handout. The Roman Catholic Church was started out of Rome. It's just totally different from us, and you guys know that, so I'm not even going to waste time on that. The Church of England, they were the church that Henry VIII started when he got mad at the Pope. Henry VIII was a good Catholic boy. He was toeing the line. He knew City of God. He had his Latin Roman Vulgate. He was a Catholic guy. He got mad at the Pope, made his own church, Church of England. They kept, and, and Church of England, it's called the Anglican Church, but it's even called the Church uh, like without a Pope or Pope, Roman Catholic Church Light, something like that. But they actually came out of the Roman Catholic Church, is my point. And people in the Church of England at this time didn't like how the Church of England was starting to go back to Roman Catholic ways. They were, they were doing some of the practices of the Roman Catholics. Um, Luther in Germany was a Catholic priest. And whenever he got a hold of a, a Bible and, and really started reading it and realizing that what they're teaching us in the Catholic Church is wrong, he started protesting the Roman Catholic Church. That's where we get the word Protestant. They were protesting the Catholic Church. They're called reformers. They wanted to reform the church. The Church of Scotland's that way. Lutherans, Methodists, uh, the Calvinists, Quakers, Puritans, Pilgrims, lots of Protestants in the world. My point of all this, we are not Protestants. We did not come from the Protestant line. We were never part of the Roman Catholic Church. We were never part of the Church of England. We came from the Bible believers, from the disciples. So. So anyway, so that's where those church groups came from. We are not Protestants, would be the bold print that sometimes they, I don't know, anyway, but we're not Protestants. Jim? Yeah. This is a side note. Yeah. My mom's done genealogy on uh, our family mm -hmm. for like 20 years, or 25 years, a long time. And we, uh, she's traced us back to, so we're, came from, we're Scots-Irish. Okay, cool. Okay. Irish and are good. She, yeah, and she traced us, the Scottish Kirks. Yeah. There is a, uh, one of the kings that was very short-lived. 
is in our line. Well, that's cool. I haven't looked at it in a while, but now I'm going to have to get Your Scottish carrick. You're yeah. the carricks. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, find the carrick that I was. Yeah. It's really cool. I mean, uh, we're all related. Uh, yeah, all this was going on. So, so these are the groups that are outside the castle with bullhorns wanting King James to be sympathetic to their cause. Does that make sense? That's what was going on when James comes in. Cars are being burned in the streets. I mean, there's like civil uprest going on. So, the first thing that happens is the Puritans, I don't know if, you, if you've ever heard of the millinery petition. The millineries from the, the thousand. A thousand of these Puritans, th these Puritans were radicals. They're the ones that came to the United States on the Mayflower. So, I mean, they're, they're here. They're among us. Uh, the Puritans were radicals because they were, they, they were part of the Church of England. But they were tired of the things that were going on in the Church of England uh, that were too Catholic-y for them. I think I have it on a slide coming up. I don't know, that's the thing we just talked about. Yeah. The, uh, the Church of England, they were changing in their baptisms. They were letting, you know, anybody baptize anybody. And they were all doing the sign of the cross before they dunked them. And they were dunking children. They were allowing children to join the church uh, with the infant uh, confirmation. Um, the bishops in the church were taking multiple titles. You know, there's a pastor. He gets paid. But the pastor also wants to be the worship leader, and he gets a salary. And he's also going to take care of facilities, and he's going to get that salary. So he was like triple dipping. That was going on in the Church of England. So the Puritans had had enough, and they said, we want James to stop all of that. And they gave him like an ultimatum, this uh, millinery petition, and it really concerned James. <coughs> so what James did, James called... It's called the Hampton Court Conference. And this, this is key in the, the creation of our Bible, our King James Bible. The Hampton Court Conference. It was in Westminster, uh, Hampton Court. It's just, you know, here's London. It's, it's around London. What James did, and this shows his wisdom, because I've read all the transcripts. It's a three-day conference. Uh, I've read the transcripts. It's really interesting. James says, okay, all you people, put your bullhorns down, and we're going to meet at Hampton Court, and we're going to talk about your issues. So he invited all the bishops, a bunch of bishops from the Church of England, lawyers from England, uh, some, some of the city leaders and such, and a big delegation of Puritans are allowed to go to voice their concerns about all things Church of England. Uh, he listened to them all for three days, and he, he, it's really cool how he played sides and kind of picked fights with different groups, and it's really funny. But at the end of it, one of the Puritans said, a guy named Bancroft, what we really need is a new Bible, because the Bishop's Bible that the Church of England's using says things, and the Geneva Bible that the Puritans use said different things, and James keyed on that and said, yes, we need a new Bible that we can all agree to. Um, so that's what he did. He, he made the decree, let's make a King James authorized version Bible to be used by churches in England. And it came right out of the Hampton Court Conference. And this was in uh, January 1604. So he'd only been on the throne for a few months when he did that. Alright, so now dark clouds come in. Uh, I haven't really talked about the Jesuits much, but they're on my timeline big time. So right now we're up to about here on this timeline. So here's, in a nutshell, I'm starting to run out of time, so I'm going to, in a nutshell. Um, Ignatius Loyola, you know, we've heard of him. He's got colleges named after him, and he's, he's just all great. No, he's not great. He actually, uh, he was a, a, a military guy in Spain, came up with the idea of making a like militant arm of the Catholic Church. You know, the Pope can make a decree that there's no Bibles allowed kind of thing, no translating of the Bibles. But the Pope can't go out with, with a whip or whatever and start cracking down on people. So Ignatius Loyola says, let's make this Society of Jesus and we'll do all the dirty work 
behind the scenes to keep everybody in alignment with the Roman Catholic Church. So now these guys, um, you know, they swear allegiance to the Pope. Um, their oath is on, you can get it, lots of libraries have their oath. It's just, it will make your, your hair stand up. These guys are so bad and wicked. Their idea is they want to, they, they, allegiance to the Pope, no kings. They want to infiltrate Protestant churches, uh, uh, universities. They'll even denounce their own faith to pose as a Protestant. Uh, and, and their goal is to kill every man, woman, and child that won't be part of the Roman Catholic Church. And that's what they do all through history. And these guys, yeah, they, the people call them, call them the, the Gestapo of the Roman Catholic Church. But all through history, these guys will show up. Even in the, in the United States history, the assassination of Lincoln, they were Jesuits. Uh, our Civil War was attributed to them. They show up all through history. When King James shows up, um, yeah, they had been banned. They, they have been banned in most countries all through Europe, uh, South America. I mean, they've, uh, they've done all kinds of stuff. So they, Elizabeth, his cousin that was on the throne before James, had already banned them from England. But they were still operating, of course, under the covers. So when James shows up and he's going to make a new Bible, they're not having it. So they come up with this uh, gunpowder plot. And this is all historical fact that you can get from you know, any, any library or anything. The Jesuits rented uh, like a cellar, storage cellar, underneath Parliament. And this is in 1604-5 is when it actually took place. They put two tons of dynamite in it, and they were waiting for James and his family to come into Parliament to kill them all. You know, stop this Bible translating thing, just put an end to James, and get somebody sympathetic to the Roman Catholic Church in England. Well, fortunately, um, someone tipped off James. They found the conspirators. There was 13 of them. Uh, Guy Hawks was the guy that took, took the fall. They killed all of them. James did. Uh, picture of him trying him there. Uh, and, and the Guy Fawkes Day is still celebrated today in, in, the, in England. A lot of people see Guy Fawkes as the guy that was standing up to the tyranny of the time. So that's where that whole uh, vendetta mask and all that comes from. So anyway, but the plot failed. God thwarted it, tipped off James. Uh, so our Bible almost didn't happen, at least that way. I'm sure God would have found another way. But So here's what James did. I think this is in your handout too. Second page. Alright. Yeah, second page. The, the millinery petition came from the Puritans. Okay, let's get together. They court. James said, we're going to do this right if we're going to do it. One of the failings of, of all those English Bibles that we've already talked about was uh, they were pretty much done by one guy, you know, Tyndale or John Rogers or whoever. So there wasn't, you know, that whole multitude of counselors principle coming in where people weren't reviewing each other's work. And as a result of that, some of the translations in those early Bibles were, uh, were weird. Uh, to give you an example, in, in Ecclesiastes 11.1, 1, there's that verse that we know about uh, cast your bread on, on many waters, something like that. Well, in, in some of our early English Bibles, it was uh, cast your bread upon wet faces. They just translated that. It was too literal. So when he, Because the Hebrew was uh, face of the water, so they put down wet faces. And so the, it was kludgy in the translation. Another one was uh, in the Gospels. It was uh, we're talking about Peter. Peter went to the his mother's house, his his wife's house, but her mother. Some, something confusing. But the King James guy said Peter went to his mother-in-law's. You know, just simple. You know, to the point. So some of the earlier translations in all those Bibles that we list are kludgy. Uh, and James seen that and, and all these translators seen it. So what he did, he put together these committees. There's six of these committees and they worked out of three different cities. I showed them there. They're around London. They're only 50 or 60 miles apart. 
these guys worked in the in the libraries. Um, there were 54 appointed. Sometimes you'll see 54 translators, but actually only 47 of them did the work. A couple of them died. Some of them we never heard from again. Uh, so we don't know what they did. So out of these 47, these are the men. I, I wanted to type these out, if, if not else, nothing else, for myself. Because, I mean, these are the guys that, that you know, they really put the work in to give us our Bible. And what they did, I think, so I've always been interested in this. This is really cool. These six committees, they each took a chunk of Scripture, and they would go over it and over it and over it. And, and then they would you know, amongst themselves. So like the first guys in Westminster, the Genesis of Second Kings, these guys sat down with those books, with the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, translated that section of scripture, reviewed it amongst themselves within their own committee over and over and over, and then they would give it to the next committee. They would, they would meet together in, in Westminster a few times a year, where they would then give each other what they've done. So each one is working on their own section of scripture. Reviewing, giving it to the next, reviewing, 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 give it to the next. It has been reviewed so many times. They all were doing that. And at the very end, and this is why I just, man, it makes my hair stand up on my neck. <clears throat> when they were done, and they thought, okay, we're done with Genesis 2 Kings. They went into the hall at Westminster, and Bancroft was the guy over it. So Bancroft and a couple other guys, and just imagine this majestic hall huge ceilings, columns, you know, leather, just just cool, beautiful, beautiful. Marble floors, all that stuff. Somebody would read the translation out loud to the Bancroft and some of his friends and they would just, you know, close their eyes and listen to make sure that it flowed. You didn't have any of the goofy translations that some of the earlier ones had. I can't imagine that would be your job all day long as you sit and somebody just reads you the Bible. You know, they would have had that real thick English accent. Wow. It's, it makes my hair stand up. That is so cool to think that's what they did. None of the others did that kind of stuff. None of the other English Bibles. So they read the entire Bible and at the very end they said, okay, this is the one. It took them seven years to do that, which, you know, we know the significance of seven to God. Uh, so at the end, they gave it to James. Uh, they did the first printing in 1611, seven years after they begun. Any questions on any of that? I do. Yeah. So my question is, when they were translating the Bible, yeah, I've heard that they, like when they wrote the word God, you know, in reverence, they had to wash their hands. That was the Masoretes. Okay. You're exactly right. You know, something unfortunate, too, on that same line. Um, these translators, these 47 guys, they, you know, they, they did all this. They took lots of notes. I mean, they had just volumes of notes. Well, in, in uh, 1666, London had a big fire, and, and half the city burned down. Yeah, and unfortunately, the, the library in London, which had all of this translator stuff, burned. So we've lost... I don't know if God does that on purpose because we don't really need to know. We don't want to worship these guys. I don't know. But, but we lost all of that data. And we would have lost it for, for everything. But in the 1800s, a guy named Alexander McClure. Actually, I have his book. This is one of the first books I bought. Alexander McClure spent his life cooking around England, London, finding all the documentation he can and he is the one, Alexander McClure, is the one that actually identified these 47 guys. No one really knew who they were until the middle 1800s. This guy just dedicated his life, and he's got chapters on each one of these guys. And these guys were just all awesome in their own right. They were linguists, they were scholars, they were believers. Um, the ones in bold, I was going to go through and put, but I, I didn't because I didn't want to make it confusing. But. Many of the translators were Puritans 
that were part of the Hampton Court Conference. They just kind of got ushered in. They, they seen the whole thing soup to nuts, uh, which is really cool. Uh, they, these are the guys in bold. They were the diehard Puritans. Lancelot Andrews is, um, I don't have time to get into his life, but he was really, really cool guy. Uh, extremely sharp. But Now Miles Smith, the guy that's in bold, he's the guy that wrote our preface that I kind of alluded to last week. You know, when these guys were done, they wrote two additional books, other than our, our 66. They wrote two additional. One of them is the preface to you and me. And it's, it's lengthy. It, it's, uh, it's like 10 or 8 or 10 pages. But the translators, these guys, Miles Smith wrote it, tell us exactly what they did to give us our Bible. They tell us where the text came from. That's where they mentioned the Euphilus, the Gothic guy that, that I talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, they had some of his work. Uh, Erasmus, uh, and how they stayed away from the, the popish influence, they call it. Uh, so it's a very cool letter written to you and me from these guys. So I encourage you, if you get a chance, read it. A lot of Bibles have it. Some don't. If, if you don't, just Google it. I mean, it's, you can get it. It's online. The preface to the reader. The second book they wrote was the dedicatory to King James, thanking him for the chance of doing this work. And I think that's the one. Yeah, I have it coming up. We'll talk about that in a second. Get back on here. So, in 1611, it's done. They send it to the king's printer. <coughs> this is an authorized publication from King James, so it goes to the king's printer, a guy named Robert Barker. Uh, it kind of sounds, he's kind of a shyster, to be honest. He ends up, but, but he does a good work here. He prints the Bible for us. It was originally on these big 11 by 17, single-sided, you know, because they had to put every letter, and then they had this press where they pressed this paper on it. And it was very cool. Um, unfortunately, the very first version that rolled off the press in 1611 had a lot of spelling errors and typos. Um, the actual, the first Bible is called the He-She Bible because one of the worst printing errors in the 1611, this is right out of 1611, this is in the book of Ruth when he's talking about how she did this, she did that, she did the barley, and he went into the city. It's, it's she went to the city. So they call the very first 1611 Bible the He-She Bible. And uh, as they went through this thing, it was loaded with little typos like that. The reason I bring this up is, is nowadays, you know, people make all these excuses about the King James. It's not the word, you know, it's not the Bible. And you guys have heard all that. One of the arguments that you're going to hear all the time is they'll say, well, which King James? I mean, they're all different. They changed it. The first one comes out in 1611. The one we're using is from 1769. Which one do you want? They're all different. Well, they're not. When you really research it, it's typo in, in English fixing. They're not changing anything. It, they call it, we call it, additions. These are additions. This first edition of the King James had a lot of typos. And it went through several editions between 1611 and 1679, and the original translators were part of all of, of most of that until they got until they died off. So, and also the English language was firming up. In 1611, they still didn't have a U, the letter U. So, like Jesus would be with a V. These V's. So things like that changed. It went from a V in 1611 to a U in 1769. That's what we have. Um, you know, beautiful. They always do the cover page, and you know the other cover pages. Remember, I pointed out how the cover pages all had a king on there, and he was like giving the Bible to the people because he's such a great guy. Uh, that sounds like my phone. I think it is. It was. Okay. Yeah. So it's a work email. So AMC will have to wait. Um, I think that's what it was. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this cover artist shows the disciples, Peter, you know, it's to the people. Uh, these are the two books I mentioned, the note to the reader, dedica dedicatory, and you know, again, I encourage you to read these things if, whenever you get a chance. Um, 
This is the dedicatory to King James. This is originally what it looked like, thanking him. Um, and I pulled the text, and it's just, it's just funny to read, because these guys are like politicians, too. And they're thanking James. He's just the most awesome guy in the world. He's a defender of the faith. Uh, he's king of France, Ireland. I mean, all these countries are it's, it's Britain. It's the United Kingdom. Um, and they go on and tell him how just the people are so great and blessed because he's on the throne and he's just such a good guy. Nothing has filled their hearts more than doing this Bible. They lay it on really thick. It's really funny to read. Uh, they go through a couple different paragraphs of that. I do like this one here. He's telling them, the, the translators are telling James that they're thankful that he can do this. So people that are influenced by popish persons at home or abroad will try to malign us. So they reference the Roman Catholic Church influence and they do in, in the preface to you and me as well. Um, he just goes on. It's just, I didn't put this in your handout. You can Google it if you, ever, if you want to read through it. And they wrap it up with, man, you're just such a good guy. I mean, you can hear how great thou art, you know, playing in the background when you're reading this. They're really funny. Um, what are we up to now? So now this is kind of our timeline of where our Bible comes from. This is a good time because i got to shut down. You know, 1603. I did put this in your handout. That way you have a little timeline to... Oh, well, you know, I missed the rules. Darn it. Uh, page 3 of your handout. When James put this little committee thing together, he gave them these rules. You will follow this. And fortunately, they didn't. Because of the very first line, um, the king says, you know, follow the bishop's Bible. Well, they didn't. They, they followed the original Hebrew. And they tell us that in the preface. In the preface to you and me, the translators tell us, uh, we use the original Greek and Hebrew. We didn't do the bishop's thing, like the king wanted. I, I don't know how they didn't get in trouble, but they did. So anyway, you can read through those on your own, but they're, they're very cool. No, these are rules he gave them. Do this. They did some of it. But fortunately, they, they broke when they felt led by the Spirit. So on your back page are your two, I got two timelines. King James Bible timeline. You know, like I said, Elizabeth dies in 1603. 1604, he gets the phone call, sets up the Hampton Court Conference, takes him seven years to make it. Then there's seven editions. Go figure. Not eight, not six, there's seven to get us to our 1769 King James Bible that has not changed since. That's where we got our Bible. Isn't that cool? I just, I love that story. That's where it's from. So, any questions, comments? Yeah, lots of sevens. Yeah, and that's the number of the perfection, completion in the Bible. It's God's number. He always uses seven. So, I'm curious. All the quotations in the New Testament that are from the Old Testament, did those match the Dead Sea Scrolls? No, 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 no. They didn't actually. That's a good question. Uh, uh, well, a lot of people say they match the Septuagint, but they don't. No, I mean it's. That's an old, uh, we covered that in like week two, I think, the Septuagint. But <laughs> no, they, I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, that's pre-Masoretic. They, they call it MTs, uh, the pre-Masoretes. But no, they didn't. The, the stuff that the, uh, the Essenes was the group that hid all that. That was their little library, the, the Amish. That was the Amish of Jerusalem at the time. So the Amish folks hid all that stuff in that little cave. Actually, there's 12 caves. But, uh, no, those scrolls were, they weren't necessarily corrupt, but they weren't necessarily pure either. They were just Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the, the Isaiah scroll that's on display now in the British Museum does match the Masoretic text. So, the stuff in the Dead Sea Scrolls isn't bad at all. But uh, whenever Jesus was quoting, he was quoting that... Masoretic line of text that existed from Ezra. I guess that makes sense. That makes sense. Or, which is kind of the Dead Sea's probably some of that, but yeah, they hid it away. It's a good question, though. Yeah, that's where this stuff lines up when Jesus was quoting the Old Testament. Uh, well, I'm glad he did because he quoted 
you know, it's very uh, strategic what Jesus quoted. It was like passages and books that are questioned today. Well, Jesus said it here, and we know how he said it. <coughs> so it's out of this book. So, so we have the division of the three, the, the writings, the prophets, and the Psalms. He covered each one of those, Jesus did, and then wrote out of those. So, anyway. Any other? And those, that is what has been preserved. Yes, through the Masoretes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's those those thirty nine books, in the order. Now the order's changed. That's that's another thing. But, but yes, uh, those are preserved for us today, and we can actually see when Jesus quoted something out of Deuteronomy or Psalms or the prophets, it matches what's in our Masoretic text. It's in our Old Testament, not not the Septuagint perversion. Did King James pay these men for doing this work? You know, that's one thing I've not run across. I don't think he did. Well, that's what I've heard. That's a good question. You know, I've read a lot of books on this. I actually brought a few. I've got like two or three of my favorites. This one's another really good one. God's Secretaries. Uh, This was a good book. A lot of them kind of root out of McClure's book. But I've never seen them getting paid. That's a really good question. I'm going to have to look into that. Because they all had day jobs. I mean, they did other things. Actually, a couple of them were like playwrights, because this is during the time of Shakespeare and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of interesting. Maybe one was Shakespeare. Super yeah, wouldn't that be funny? Like a, a, a pen name. Writers. Yeah, a pen name. All right, well, I'm going to shut her down because we got to get into the, the Mighty Warriors now. Uh, next week, <coughs> here's where we're going to pick up next week. I'll just give you a little teaser. In 16, let's say 1700s, 1800s. When you go to to the old bookstore like Mardell's, with with when you go to a bookstore in the 1800s and you go to the Bibles, you got two Bibles to choose from. You got the 1611 King James or 1769, or you got the Dewey Reams, the Catholic perversion of the the Bible. So those are the two Bibles in your bookstore in 1769. Or 1700, 1800. So how do we get to that? To when you go into Mardell's today, it's a whole wall of goofiness. And that's what we're going to get into next week, is where all these corrupt versions come from, and how they got to us. And you know the Jesuits are a big part of it. Because they are. So, anyway, we'll we'll do that. So, uh, let's pray. Uh, David, do you care to pray? I got a good drink. Father God, we just come to you and just tell you that we love you, Father, and we're just thankful that uh, uh, you preserved your word through the uh, timeline. It's really cool to learn about that today, Father, and just uh, thank you for your love for us, Father, and just uh, praise you and Christ and amen. Amen. All right. We'll be here next week. Same bat channel. Okay, I get finished. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Finish her up. Did we have anybody online today? Uh, yeah, about Couple. Three, okay.